Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today is John Birdsall. He is the James Beard award-winning writer who happens to be the author of the James Beard biography, The Man Who Ate Too Much, which was an incredibly celebrated book when it came out um, last year. And so today we talk all about lots of subjects, including why he was interested in James Beard as a subject. He was, he had to suppress so much of his private queer life, and yet he was inviting the public in to experience cooking in his in his kitchen. Being a gay chef in San Francisco in the 90s. Hard to conceive of nowadays um, that that level of identity was not welcome, even in kitchens, even in quite progressive kitchens. And how the AIDS crisis played out in restaurants. You know, if you were a waiter um, and you had sort of visible lesions, um, you know, maybe on your face or hands or something like that, um, certain restaurants would find another task for you. So without further ado, here is my conversation with John Birdsall. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for coming on Lunch Therapy. You're one of my guests that I've for a long time been dying to have you on and I finally pulled the trigger. And so thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been a fan <laughs> for years. Um, oh so gosh. yeah, it, feel, it feels great to be here. Well, um, I have next to me right here your um, incredible biography of James Beard, the man who ate too much. Yes. And I'm curious, like, how long has it been now since it's been out? And are you still doing events for it and doing, you know, James Beard related activities? Yeah. So the book uh, was published in October uh, 2020. Um, right. So it's been okay. three years now. And, um, you know, at the at the time when it came out, it felt normal to me because I had I mean, I had co-authored a book with a chef. This is my first solo book. And, you know, was kind of looking forward to book tour and all of that thing. And then um, when the sort of, you know, really bad news about COVID broke <clears throat> at the beginning of 2020, I remember having a meeting with uh, my editor at Norton, Melanie, and then the the publicist there. And they were like, well... This COVID thing, everyone, everyone's like sort of locked down and it's mm -hmm. really scary. But, you know, it's like March now, the book comes out in October, we'll be good by then. Um, uh, so, you know, let's still continue with our plans for the book tour. Of course, it, it didn't work out that way. So um, I promoted the book, you know, as much as I could when it, when it came out, um, you know, some sort of virtual appearances. Uh, book festivals and stuff. Um, and then I, you know, since then I've, you know, spoken to classes, mm -hmm. um, you know, like journalism students, writers, um, you know, biography seminar, um, you know, pretty much everything, uh, you know, virtual. So right. um, it's kind of an ongoing thing about, a, you know, a biography is weird because it has a really long life uh, yeah. in book terms. Um, so it's, it's something that kind of surprises me that it's still sort of out there. Um, cause for me personally, it feels like, oh my God, this, this was so long ago. And we, um, my agent sold the, sold the, sold the TV and movie rights. Oh, cool. So, um, yeah, so that was in, in a sense, that is definitely the coolest part of the post publication. Who's your dream actor to play, uh, James Beard. And, you know, we have talked about that. So long, I think, um, you know, a kind of young James Beard, youngish James Beard would be like 
Paul Dano. Uh-huh. Um, and then kind of like an older, maybe middle-aged James Beard. We thought of like, you know, Paul Giamatti. Um, mm-hmm. But um, so Gotham Gotham Pictures sort of option optioned it, and they they actually hired um, two uh, gay writers, David Talbot and Andrew Sean Greer, to come up with oh, cool. uh, treatment. Pulitzer, yeah, so Pulitzer the, Prize winner. Yeah, Andrew exactly. Sean Greer so for less, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. And so they did like an eight part um, treatment, and I haven't been allowed to see it, but. Um, I spoke with them on the phone about their approach and what they were doing. And it was like, you know, they're like, Oh, we see, we see James Beard as this, you know, troubled character, all these multiple personalities. And so we see this story as not being linear, you know, not being chronological. Um, And so there'd be like, you know, six or seven beards at different ages who would be uh, like interacting with each other for various things. And I'd watch that. That is totally cool. Like, why didn't yeah. I think of that for the book? <laughs> um, well, TV, I feel like it's such a different medium that it's like you have yeah. to maintain the audience's interest. It's funny, though, because you're so political and everything. And I'm curious, like, do you have thoughts about gay actors playing? I mean, gay parts only being played by gay actors? Yeah, you know what? Actually, that's, that, I have not thought of that, uh, about that because um, because I'm kind of clueless when it comes to... <laughs> you know, thinking about, you know, Hollywood uh, in that way. But yeah, you know, I, I think that's a tricky one. I mean, I, 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 I think for, you know, I definitely would, I definitely cheer and support queer actors who play straight characters or who play, right. you know, bi characters or whatever. Um, and, and so um yeah, I know the whole like Tom Hanks Philadelphia thing. <laughs> yeah, but you know what's funny is like I'm married to a director and he feels very strongly that um straight actors should be able to play gay parts that yeah. you know and and I think it's really he always says it's the best actor for the job. Yeah. Um and right. I think you know and, and so I I I think Paul Giamatti and Paul Dano are great ideas for James Beard. So I'm kind of of that belief system too. Yeah, and I think you know I think you know certainly from my generation there was this sense you know, there's this firm sense of uh, sort of boundaries around sexuality. Um, and I think, you know, there was not perhaps as much permission or um, I don't know, just, you know, I, th- I think, you know, thinking of the, the sort of binary of gay straight just feels it doesn't really feel apt. Totally. Now. And I've always been like, what are you going to do? Like, like quiz an actor on their sexual history like did you experiment in college did you right right right. and some some actors get a free pass like i feel like um oh what's his name from e2 mama tambien um i'm totally blanking he's really beautiful Um, right right. gail it's not gabriel garcia marquez but it's like uh like he always plays gay parts and it's like well for all we know he has tons of gay experiences yeah for what we know now of like a little bit sort of glimpses of who you know sort of classic hollywood hollywood actors mm-hmm. were there's you know a lot of fluidity that we just weren't allowed to kind of know about um so you know to think of 
you know, of course, Greta Garbo or Marlene mm-hmm. Dietrich as, you know, were they straight actors? You know, uh-huh. uh, it's just, it's, you know, the, you know, the world is much more sort of nuanced and complicated than that. So, you know, who would have been a great James Beard, I think would have been Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yes. Um, well, I think, I, um, I think you'll have a lot of <laughs> options to choose from. Well, before we get too carried away on James Beard, we're, we're going to come back to that later. I feel like we should just dive into your therapy session now. Um, right. So if you're ready, um, yes, you're ready. Um, John, what did you have for lunch today? So I still have part of it. It's a, oh. um, oh. it's, it's, wow. See, this is the therapy part where I feel, where I express my self-consciousness about it. It's pretty boring. It's a, like a cheese sandwich. Okay. Um, and it's this cheese that I love, which is, a, it's called cheddar gruyere, mm. which is, so it's like a blend, a cheese making blend of those two styles. Um but it's fantastic. So that with like Dijon mustard and then just on pretty basic, good um, kind of seedy, seedy bread um, is, is it. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> uh, I mean, in, in terms of your own self-consciousness, how aware were you of this being the lunch you talked about on a podcast when you made your lunch? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking, first I was thinking, well, since I live in Tucson, like I should do something really like, sonoran mm-hmm. you know something but i was thinking how terribly messy that might be you know <laughs> to sort of run out and get you know quesadillas or something like that and so i kind of i thought no this should be what i would actually eat on this day yeah you know, i shouldn't maybe try to do something some sort of stunt lunch <laughs> um that would be like dripping off of my off of my forearms but um, so, yeah. And so I just felt like, okay, I love this cheese. I have it in the fridge. This is something that I would eat anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I should, I, I should just own it. <laughs> well, I, I think the gimmicky lunch would have been the James Beard sandwich, right? The raw onions. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Isn't um, that like a, for those who don't know, it's sort of like butter, raw onion, and then like parsley on the outside. Is that sort of how you make it? Yes, exactly. It's um yeah, so it's just a very simple, you know, it was something that he started making long ago when he was a caterer in New York City. Um, so yeah, just very, very thin raw onions, good butter. And then, yeah, you butter the outside of these round kind of large canapes, and then you dip the you dip the sides in parsley. I've had a version of this sandwich made with mayonnaise instead of butter, mm-hmm. um, the Portland chef. Naomi Pomeroy. Oh yeah, I know her. Um, at her bar, Expatriate, um, they serve that sandwich made with mayonnaise, which is really delicious. It's say. so funny because my grandmother, my Jewish grandmother, who's no longer with us, was a big enjoyer of red onions. Like we would get bagels yeah. or like eggs or something. She'd always get raw red onions on it, and then she'd always say, "Like people say, I have terrible breath, but I don't know why." And I'm like grandma, because yeah. you eat onions all the time. But I feel like there is something exciting and not and novel about eating a raw onion. In fact, I what's think, her name? That actress on TikTok is always eating like onions, like apples. Marion like apples. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah, you know, I think it was such a sort of historic and kind of cultural thing. I mean, um, we somehow keep coming back to James Beard, but I think when, when Beard was sort of making this sandwich and when this small catering company that he worked for, when they had this success with it, um, were being kind of celebrated by, 
newspaper columnists for this onion sandwich, you know, at this moment in the life of New York City, the late 1930s, I think there was this, probably this generational uh, appreciation for onion. You know, people's Mm -hmm. parents came from Central Europe, Eastern Europe, probably, you know, loved raw onion. Mm-hmm. Um, and they probably ate it with like schmaltz or something. And mm-hmm. so the fact that at some sort of, you know, cocktail party on the Upper East Side, you could be served this sandwich that was somehow echoed that, but sort of, you know, quote unquote, elevated it, you know, using butter instead of schmaltz, mm-hmm. you know, uh, envisioning it as this sort of canapé rather than, you know, a, a lunch thing or a snack. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it probably had this kind of resonance for, you know, yeah, this is New York, late 1930s. This is, you know, our parents, you know, may have immigrated from, you know, wherever, parents, grandparents. Um, and now, you know, we 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 are <laughs> we are living this kind of, you know, elegant, upscaled life. Um it makes me think of Philip Roth, because I read a lot of Philip Roth, but just that right. idea of like him coming from this like gritty Jewish culture, yeah. children of immigrants to then be like living on the Upper West Side and yeah, having a sophisticated New York life, but like still being still tied having, to that. Still life. having a craving, yeah, sort of feeling yeah. that connection to 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 raw onion. <laughs> um well to go back to your sandwich, I mean I'm there's a lot to unpack here because I I was reading a bunch of your writing before um, we got hopped on. And one of the things you write a lot about is pleasure and, and queerness and forbidden <laughs> pleasure and, and um, or, or culturally forbidden pleasure, I should say. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so your sandwich feels like a very um, like, like a combination sort of, of, of like sort of utilitarian, like I need to feed myself, but with, with little components, um, of pleasure, like this cheese that you love and this good bread. So I was curious, how do you strike a balance in your own diet between pleasure and just prudence for lack of a better word? Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, long before I, I started writing, I was a restaurant cook and I started cooking in San Francisco in the sort of mid early to mid 1980s. And the, the the restaurants where I trained at, where I worked, I mean, I started working at Green's restaurant in San Francisco, but they were part of this very active school that was going on there at the time, you know, sort of Alice Waters and Japanese inspired movement um, that, you know, put a lot of focus on simple, pure ingredients. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like my, even my utilitarian impulses, my plain, plain, plain homespun kind of utilitarian impulse, you know, still, I think I, I, I have that desire to eat something that's quite delicious in its own Mm -hmm. and to treat it very simply, like not, not do very much with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember one of my, when I started working at Greens, Deborah Madison, great sort of chef and cookbook author had, had just left and I found this um, sheet of in the office uh, I was kind of snooping around and I found this sheet of sandwich ideas mm-hmm. that were Deborah's and the the one sandwich that really um, struck me and this was long before I think most people were aware well before you know something called avocado toast even existed as we understand it now was just you know really good um, sourdough bread that was 
grilled over the coals at the restaurant and then just, you know, drizzled with olive oil and, you know, delicious dead ripe, like buttery avocado fan mm-hmm. over the top with, with coarse salt. Sounds really, to me now, that sounds, of course, very almost cliche. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but, you know, at the time, it, this was that this was really striking. It was like, wow, you know, the olive mm-hmm. oil is perfect. Um, you know, it's, it's this delicious buttery olive oil, perfectly ripe for buttery avocados, good bread, you know, the, the sort of shadow of the grilling on the, on the toast. And so I think even, you know, something like a little cheese sandwich that I'll just make for myself, um, I still have the echo of that, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that sort of ideal of just combining, yeah. you know, two or three perfect things. Well, it's about caring, I think, like caring enough to find those things and to assemble it in a way where you're actually putting thought into what you're doing as opposed to just throwing something together. Um, I'm curious, were you in San Francisco at the same time as David Leibovitz? uh, Yes, we did not know each other then. Um, He was, I think probably when I started cooking, he had already, he may have already left Japanese and was working um, at, um, uh, there's a, a restaurant uh, called uh, Monsoon that okay. was um, by this sort of author, um, Bruce Cost, who wrote about um, Asian food, specifically like Southern Chinese cooking. So he opened this restaurant in San Francisco and David went to work there. He was the opening pastry chef. That's um, so cool that both of you had such similar starts to your careers <laughs> that you were both in San Francisco working at restaurants, but you were both on this De- destined to become prominent yes. food writers. Um, but I'm curious, and I know I know David's story, he's been on this podcast, but for you, when you were working in restaurant kitchens, did you think at the time that that was going to be it for you, that, that you were going to be a restaurant chef, or did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Well, when 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 I started, I mean, I'd, I'd gone to Berkeley um, and I got, you know, an undergraduate degree in English. And um, I actually did get a writing job right out of college. I went to work for this mom and pop trade magazine in San Francisco, writing about office products. Okay. Um, and so I felt like, okay, you know, I aspired to be a writer. Um, and so I was actually, you know, right out of college making a living, uh, you know, with my writing. I mean, it was not very glamorous or, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I was writing about like pens, like the new <laughs> pens for, oh, um, no. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the, and, and, and then, um, you know, I've, I very much wanted to do something, you know, physical and I had this kind of cliche epiphany about food, you know, like my first boyfriend took me to lunch at greens, um, and I just never experienced anything like it. And so I wanted to know how it was done, how it was put together. Um, and so when I started, uh, I, I started volunteering there on like Saturdays. They let me come in and just, you know, help out, chop herbs, wash lettuce. Um, and I thought, and so I really wanted to get hired there and eventually they did. And I thought I would work there for a year and then, you know, write about all the things that I'd learned. So writing was always, or from the beginning, writing was part of, what I saw myself doing, but it just took me, I mean, I was in the kitchen for over 15 years. You know, really? It just took me so long to get out of the kitchen, um, huh. you know, for various reasons, fear, 
also just kind of loving being in the kitchen and cooking. Um, and um, yeah, so, and I did do some writing as I was cooking, um, you know, started writing for this queer uh, weekly in San Francisco called The Sentinel. So writing about food, doing restaurant reviews and things. Oh, cool. um, so I was kind of sort of dabbling and thinking about how I might be able to kind of make a transition someday uh, from the kitchen. Uh, well, it's interesting because um, your um, temperament seems to be very gentle. And mm. I think of restaurant kitchens as being very not gentle, <laughs> um, yeah. having watched The Bear and Gordon Ramsay and all those the things. <laughs> but, you know, the, yeah, but I mean, I think that's what was really striking about that generation of restaurants, <clears throat> you know, Chez Panisse, but one's you know, the handful of restaurants that Chez Panisse spawned pretty, pretty much directly or, you know, um, you know, Deborah Madison had worked at Chez Panisse and she became the head chef of Green's restaurant. I mean, she was also a Zen, a Zen priest and Green's was owned by San Francisco Zen Center. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was um, San Francisco Zen Center, I think started in the 1950s. And, um, you know, it was a home for the specific school of Japanese Zen, the Soto Zen, which is very quiet school of Zen, um, very austere, almost has this kind of like shaker kind of, uh, you know, simple austerity to it that appealed to me so much. Like, like, I love that, um, you know, very simple black robes and, um, you know, meditation, of course, is a huge part of the practice. Um, and when I started at Greens, I was pretty, pretty, perhaps the only non-Zen student who was working there. Um, and so Zen Center, as part of its practice, um, they had this idea to open businesses and to open stressful businesses and to have Zen students do Zen practice in mm. some of the most stressful work. It was like restaurant work. Uh, they had a bakery, Tassahara. Um, they had a couple of, of, of other businesses as well. And so Deborah was asked to be the, be, to be the, the opening chef. Of, so was of it just green, very quiet and meditative in the kitchen? It was quiet. There were like quiet work periods um, where you were only allowed to speak for, you know, utilitarian <laughs> reasons. Um, and really? then a couple of, a couple of times a shift, um, everyone would stop and they'd sort of, you know, strike this Japanese wooden bell and everybody would, they'd offer incense on the altar and everybody would be quiet and then you'd bow three times or something oh to God. the altar. So this is the total <laughs> opposite get, of like... And then get back to work. Yeah, what, what, what oh, people yeah. think of when we're restaurant kitchens. But in terms of like customers coming in, were the customers as zen as the people in the kitchen or were they, they demanding? You know, it was like, I mean, when it opened, it was like 1979, I think. So it was like, you know, the California of the first um, administration of, of like Jerry Brown, who was totally okay. into meditation and stuff. So there was this, you know, um, there was this kind of like celebrity, you know, interest in like, like Zen Buddhism. Um, you know, there's like, I mean, it was kind of this perfect moment away because it was like this mix of this, um, this kind of um, aesthetic appreciation for this, you know, simplicity kind of paired with this this kind of hedonism yeah <laughs> um so it was like you know outwardly everything would be very kind of simple 
um, not a lot of artifice. Uh, but then, you know, on the plate, the food, the food coming from the farms, because um, then Center also had a farm up, up in Green Gulch. So, you know, uh, a percentage of the produce, the lettuces and herbs that 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 we were serving came from the farm. Mm-hmm. So there's this sense of this kind of purity, but then this complete abandon about kind of enjoying taste and flavor and, you know, color and and, and form. And um, yeah, and on, also, you know, those kitchens were run by women, like mm-hmm. Deborah Madison, you know, Judy Rogers, ultimately, um, Joyce Goldstein. And so they were much more collaborative. And I remember when I started at Green's, there would be um, a, kitchen, <laughs> a kitchen meeting that was for everybody. And you'd sit around the dining room. And if you could do things like, you know, tip green beans or shell walnuts you know we did that but sometimes they went on for over an hour and it was you know we were invited to talk about how we felt about our jobs if we had conflicts with other cooks and the people would be like crying you know like oh you know, i felt so hurt when you like closed the walk-in <laughs> door on me you know and like yeah you know i was i've been carrying that around for a couple of days <laughs> and <laughs> you know wild. any other kitchen it was just like not practical but there it would be like it was part of the whole process so well it's a fascinating experiment like in um what produces the better food because it's like the philosophy of those like four-star chefs is like you know people should be terrified in the kitchen so that they make everything perfect whereas in your kitchen that you were working in it was sort of the opposite where everyone should be relaxed and feel comfortable i mean right and you know there was still all the stress and i you know i think part of the reason why deborah had to go you know, she chose to go is just because, you know, it was just incredibly stressful. <laughs> you know, it's always going to be incredibly stressful. Um, so all of that stress is still built into it. Um, but, you know, trying to keep a level of mindfulness while this, you know, your, <laughs> you know, your, st- you know, your tickets are stacked up on the station <laughs> and you're kind of freaking out. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great kind of a, I mean, it seems like an apprentice. It wasn't a formal apprenticeship, but that's what it that's what it felt like. So, when did you fully commit to being a writer full time as um, your job? That was two thousand two. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I had I had gone through this whole succession of kind of later in my cooking career, um, just jobs that I just kind of hated. You know, like I never I never found kitchens or um, chefs to work for who were as inspiring or who had the same sense that I got at, um, you know, certainly not at Greens. And so I'd be, and then my, I met my husband and he was from Chicago. And so we moved to Chicago, growing up in the Bay Area. And so we lived in Chicago for six years in the nineties and, you know, going to Chicago in 1994, it was still pretty much a meat and potatoes town. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rick Bayless had his restaurants, but it was still a pretty conservative place in terms of food. And so trying to find like the the lovely little independently owned kind of neighborhood restaurant that would have right. existed in San Francisco was just really hard. I didn't I didn't really do it. So I had a succession of jobs that I hated. And my my goal at some point was just to last a year. Like mm-hmm. I felt like if I could could stick out a job for a year I wasn't a total loser 
Uh, <laughs> and then like early in 2000, we, Perry and I moved back to the Bay Area. I was cooking and just hating it. And then, um, and Perry said, well, you know, I'll pay the bills if you just want to quit and then see, see what you can do, you know, take a year and see if you can sell stories. And um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's how it happened. So in 2002, I, that's when I did, I remember like the first morning after that, I was like, all right, like <laughs> sat down on my computer with my mug. I'm like, okay. But you know, I hadn't, I was naive and I was dumb and I, I hadn't spent the time when I was cooking, preparing for this, you know, I hadn't, made it a point of meeting editors um right you know anything like that i was just like okay and i was like damn what do i do now how do i you know i have ideas for stories but how do i reach out to editors how do i how do i sell pieces and even if you meet the editors there's no guarantee that they'll buy what you're selling because i've had yeah and so some of these editors on my podcast who don't even respond to my emails so yeah no it's it's (laughs) um you know, the job of an editor is you're just, you know, buried, overwhelmed by, by emails. And so what was the first big, um, big thing that you did as a writer? So I wrote, you know, in those, in the early 2000s, um, you know, before the sort of consolidation of daily newspapers, there were still, you know, there's the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Jose Mercury News. There were like five independent daily papers in the bay area and each one had its own food section its own weekly food section with you know it was a small budget but they had each one had a budget for like freelancers so i kind of went through the editors um you know i kind of ran through the editors um you know sending pitch letters and um you know my my break my first big break was uh the editor of the san jose mercury news uh, Julie Kaufman, who's awesome, and she she said, "I see something in this pitch. This sounds interesting." I pitched this story about California bay leaves, um, hmm. which is you know this wild kind of native West Coast tree. It's called a bay leaf. It's you know it is a laurel, but the but the leaves are very the flavor is very different from like European bay laurel. It's hmm. very very pungent. Um, and so I pitched this story about kind of writing and, you know, recipes for using California bay leaves on it. So she liked it. Um, and so then I did a small handful of other kind of recipe feature pieces for her and then started to do more kind of um, like, like journalistic stories for her, you know, like going out and talking to small farmers in Santa Cruz and that kind of thing. So that was really you know, thank God for the sort of daily, you know, food sections of daily papers. And then I got a job as a restaurant critic for another Bay Area daily. That was my other, and so that was like, like a regular gig for the Contra Costa Times. So kind of east of, east of Berkeley, um, sort of vast suburban areas. Was it hard being a critic after being a chef for so long? Like, did you find that you wanted to show mercy to restaurants more than you wanted um, to pan them? I, you know, I never, you know, I was of course really inspired by uh, Jonathan Gold. <clears throat> and so it wasn't, you know, I wasn't inspired by the, by the sort of 
famous big city critics, mm -hmm. um, you know, even like Michael Bauer in San Francisco, certainly not the New York critics who would, you know, have this, you really sort of embodied this, having this power of a critic to make or break a place. I, you know, like Jonathan Gold mm -hmm. or like, I mean, I was really inspired by Jonathan Gold to do more, it's almost like reported stories right. um, or reported criticism where you sort of tell the story of a restaurant. I mean, he was, of course, brilliant at doing that, um, you know, introducing, introducing essentially white people to, you know, food in LA that, that they might never have tasted. Um, and so, yeah, I was really, I've, felt really inspired to do that. And in fact, sometimes my editor, Nicholas Bohr, who was great and very indulgent as I was trying to feel my way, sometimes, sometimes he'd look at a draft and he'd say, I can't tell if you liked the food or you didn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> I was just, you know, very much about sort of trying to describe the experience and the, the stories of the people behind the food. So would you say as a writer, journalism, um, like actually being a food journalist was sort of the real calling for you because it, it's funny I had like a snafu today where I did a um I've been doing these food uh book Thursdays on my Instagram where I where I talk about a book and I was yeah, yeah. talking I was talking about Scott Peacock and Edna Lewis's The Gift of Southern Cooking <clears throat> and I'm so sloppy with my facts because like I was just like I'd always thought that um Emily Sailors from the Indigo Girls had hired Scott Peacock and then he demanded that she also hire Edna Lewis and that's how they became friends. So I told this whole story on my Instagram and I posted it and then Scott wrote me the nicest message where he's like, <laughs> Adam, like, thank you so much for promoting this book, but you have your facts wrong. And then I did a correction and then he's like, you also have your facts wrong in the correction because I, I was a chef. <laughs> and it's like, I am the world's worst journalist. Yeah. I don't think I'm meant to be a journalist, but I'm curious for you, is journalism sort of the first, the real calling for you? Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel most comfortable. Um, yes, um, yes, the short answer. But I feel, um, you know, I I have a heavy, uh, I, um, I feel best when I'm kind of um, like presenting, <laughs> uh, doing journalism with a heavy sense of. Kind of editorial um, kind of musing. So um, kind of using people's stories as almost like a starting point to hopefully tell um, deeper, more insightful stories or I don't know, something like that. That sounds grandiose, but, but, but definitely kind of a layering of um, sort of critical opinion, um, sort of essay writing, um, mixed with journalism. Um, so, well, yeah, because yeah, it's I mean, I think we feel like we have to skip ahead now to your sort of revolutionary award winning breakthrough article that you wrote, America, your food mm. is so gay. Gosh. And I'm curious, like in your career, um, was that something that like these stories writing about gay chefs, writing about or queer chefs, I should say, um, were they were these stories that you you kind of always wanted to write about and then and then as time marched on you you allowed yourself to write about finally i mean what was i guess what, what was the story of your own journey towards writing about the subject um yeah i mean it was it it came from a place of feeling like i had you know i had been cooking for 
15, over 15 years, being in professional kitchens for 15 years and seeing, you know, not only kind of feeling my own story from the inside, but also, you know, observing stories of queer people in the kitchen. Um, and, you know, even in a place like San Francisco, um, how there was a suppression, <clears throat> a kind of invisibility of queer people. That sounds almost, it's almost hard to conceive of nowadays um, that that level of identity was not welcome, even in kitchens, even in quite progressive kitchens. Yeah. You know, like women run kitchens or kitchens, you know, even, you know, kitchens that were run by people who were themselves queer. I mean, it was this culture this very suppressed culture. Um, and, you know, there was just the sense that your sexuality, whatever identity you take from, you know, gender, sexuality, all that is just irrelevant in the kitchen. It's not, it's not what we do here. It's not what you do. You know, you don't, you don't express that part of yourself. And how would you even express that part of yourself? Mm -hmm. There was a sense that, we, you know, what, what this, this sense that queerness, that, an ex, that expressions of queerness were primarily, would be primarily political um, mm -hmm. and not making the connection that, that a kind of personal or an expression of personal identity could be political, but not in a bombastic way. Um, and there was also the whole AIDS of it all, right? I mean, I was just thinking about Jeremiah Tower because um, I watched the documentary about him and sort of him, I think this is correct with my journalism skills, it might not be, but that he um, fired a chef who had AIDS at, or had he, HIV at Yeah, the so, yeah. Um, right. His grand restaurant, Stars, opened in 1984 in San Francisco. And I mean, I've written a I've written about Jeremiah and I've written this about Jeremiah. So I don't feel like I'm you know, like revealing anything, but um, you know, Jeremiah had to felt like he had to have a, this very walk, this very careful tightrope, I think about his, his identity and his sexuality, um, you know, being in the restaurant world at that time, kind of knowing gossip knowing inside stories about jeremiah and who he you know slept with and um and then seeing his public persona which was very which was sort of like a playboy mm -hmm. um you know you could think he was gay if you wanted to you could just as easily think that he was straight or that maybe he was bi um you know it was more that he had this kind of like kind of mysterious kind of playboy energy, very, very deb and, debonair. As the yes, way. right. Aristocratic, this kind of murky background and the axis sort of, you know, aristocratic kind of British-y accent. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it was very easy to project on Jeremiah what, what you wanted to. Stars, um, you know, the restaurant industry, certainly in San Francisco, did not... Um, it was, I mean, AIDS and HIV were just, um, they were confounding. Um, people didn't know, you know, there was so much fear, rejection, um, you know, 
AIDS and HIV fit so comfortably into all of these existing homophobic, um, in, into this sort of homophobic culture, mm -hmm. um, that it was really hard, I think, to separate things out in the way that we might be able to do today. So yeah, there was um, um, there was a really sad case where, and and um, I I have to say that some chefs and restaurateurs handled themselves beautifully. I mean, of course, Alice Waters is a perfect example of someone who brought real compassion and understanding to this issue, and other chefs as well, where, you know, if you were a waiter um, and you had sort of visible lesions, um, you know, maybe on your face or hands or something like that, um, certain restaurants would find another task for you. You know, you, they would give you another job where you weren't public facing, um, you know, because a lot of people didn't have health insurance. And um, so it was this, you know, public health crisis uh, on top of everything else. Um, you know, at Stars there was this one waiter who had uh, kind of developed visible KS lesions and um, he was fired and he sued the restaurant um, <clears throat> saying that he was fired because because of this. And so anyway, uh, there was a court a court case. It went before a jury um, and stars lost and they had to pay uh, a very l large settlement, which was one of the sort of contributing factors to the restaurant, um, you know, eventually closing. But there was this moment um, I remember doing a profile of Jeremiah for Eater and sort of talking to people. And there was this moment when, you know, specifically the gay community in San Francisco at the time was, um, you know, Jeremiah was not welcome in that community because he um, was seen as someone who wasn't kind of supporting, um, supporting people with AIDS and who was not uh, an advocate. And so, a boyfriend of his at the time, you know, I think one night a week or something, Jeremiah and his boyfriend would go to Zuni Cafe. <clears throat> and the boyfriend told me that he remembered going going to Zuni after that incident and people would, you know, confront Jeremiah or mm -hmm. turn their back, you know, like literally turn their backs on him. Um, so so it was it was an extremely difficult time and mm -hmm. being having a queer identity in a restaurant was um was very complicated and it wasn't something you know i think the more the more you had at stake in your restaurant like the more investors the more money all of that stuff that was tied up in it the harder it was to express who you were in that way to have a this sort of clear public identity um, so all of that had been kind of swirling around in my experience. So yes. by two, 2013, when, when I wrote that piece, I had so much pent up just frustration, rage, um, you know, feelings of sadness, <laughs> um, that it sort of came out as this essay about, um, just the, 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 the sort of great, um, kind of erasure uh, of queer people who had meant so much in American food um, and who had brought so much to it and influenced it in so many ways and yet weren't acknowledged for being the 
the the people who they were. Well, thank you for going into all that because I mean that's really you kind of painted a really vivid picture. And I feel like going into the Jeremiah Tower stuff is really interesting because it sort of shows the stakes of what was going on too. That it that this kind of repression and and hiding kind of had you know devastating consequences for people. So yeah, and you know to I mean I don't um, I mean certainly talking with Jeremiah, I mean, he, um, he himself experienced tremendous homophobia, um, you know, right. and the, the sort of 1980s was the, was, was a time of these sort of, um, uh, sort of vast kind of fundraising events with sort of, you know, chefs, you know, Wolfgang Puck and, mm -hmm. um, you know, Alice Waters and all these people who would sort of get together and raise money for something. And, um, yeah, Jeremiah, said that he experienced a lot of, sort of homophobia from sort of chef chef peers in the industry who would sort yeah. of and I feel make like, jokes like or laugh at him it's not to vilify him you know it's i feel like the more things that i read now and the more shows i watch about that period of time it's like you know people did all kinds of things and it makes me think of like any kind of really fraught time in history where maybe people did things that they would be proud of but it's like you can't really judge everyone for everything that they they've done. It's like yeah, and, unless and, you were there yourself. Yeah, and there was that there was not you know the the sort of gay community certainly in San Francisco was not this cohesive block. I mean, there were voices within the gay community that were like, you know, that would shame other gay men for getting AIDS. It was like, well, you know, you're promiscuous. This is what mm. you get. I mean, even you know Randy Schultz who wrote. And the band played on sort of great history yeah. of sort of AIDS. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, you know, he's been called out uh, or he, you know, he was called out at the time for having this attitude, um, you know, for having harsh words and saying, well, um, you know, the gay community sort of helped bring about this plague on 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 themselves for you know for you know insisting on you know still going to the baths or something like that you know when they knew that there was this risk of infection um so there were it was you know there was not um there was not a universal sense in the gay community that you know we all have to sort of stick together i think that came later much later with you know the rise of act up and you know, formed in chapters formed in 19 after 1987. Um, but yeah, well, the early days were, were really bleak. <laughs> well, I want to leap ahead. We're almost running out of time. I can't believe yeah, it. Sorry. But, uh, no, but I wanted to transition back to the the book, the, the Man Who Ate Too Much, because it feels like these are themes that run through this book too, about James Beard himself. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, the link between some of the stuff you were just talking about and the biography that you wrote of James Beard. Yeah, I felt like James Beard was this perfect subject for me uh, to kind of express all of this. Um, you know, Beard was the most mm, sort of recognizable, kind of affable, uh, influential person in food in the U.S. for, you know, a good 20 years, probably more like 40 years, even after he died. You know, I was t t like to say he's sort of like Ina. Um, it's sort of a mixture wow. of like, like Samin, Ina, um, you know, Martha Stewart, like this person, you know, there'd inevitably be every year, there would be the, the story of you know, what is James Beard cooking for Thanksgiving? You know, 
Um, he was the authority. He really embodied food in the United States for a couple of generations. Um, and at the same time, he lived a you know completely boxed off life, um, sort of private life, which is very full of um, queer friends and queer socializing and this sense of the sense of joy, um, sense of sort of queer joy in cooking and entertaining, drinking. Um, mm -hmm. And then you know there was the there was the public James Beard. Um, what was fascinating to me is that James Beard became partly famous for his cooking school uh, in the West Village, where he you know starting in uh, the late 1950s, um, he would invite people, students, to into his uh, townhouse uh, for these you know two week long cooking. Um, cooking lessons. And so um, I wanted to understand that because, you know, he was, he had to suppress so much of his private queer life. And yet he was inviting the public in to experience cooking in his, in his kitchen. So that sort of membrane between public and private became really fascinating to me. And I wanted to understand how um, a sort of, you know, if there was a queer sensibility in James Beard, certainly a queer voice in his early books, how that bled over into what became the kind of mainstream idea of food in America and how that queerness, that queer point of view, his queer experiences would have really, um, how they may have influenced this broader sense of American food. Um, That's so, great. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like, when, once it came out, did you? hear from anyone of that generation who um was not happy that you wrote about his private life in that way yes yes for sure i mean um when i so the previous biography of james beard um uh was written by robert clark in 1994 and it's he did a really masterful job <clears throat> so i spoke with robert clark sat down with him when i as as I was researching my book, just to meet him and find out what his experiences were. When you know James Beard died in 1985, Robert Clark was doing his research in the early 90s. So pretty much everyone who had known Beard, even childhood friends, a lot of them were still alive and he had access to them. Um, and he said that a lot of people just wouldn't talk to him about James's sexuality, his queer life. And um, he told me this story about Marion Cunningham, the sort of great cook who was the sort of protege of James Beard. And he said, yeah, he said, we sat down at Chez Panisse <laughs> to talk. And she, she, he, he said the, the, the first thing she did was she put up her hands and she said, if you want to know about James Beard's gay life, I can't help you. Um, it was just an area that was just off limits. And when I was doing my research, I had a couple of subjects who did nothing so dramatic, but they've made it very clear that they weren't going to talk about that, that part of James's life. And a large part of the research for the book for me was uh, coming to tr trying to understand what it meant to be gay, what the closet meant for that generation. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's complicated. Um, you know, it's, it, 
there were a lot of you know the open secret was 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 a thing and certainly certainly for james beard where he you know he was obscuring his private life and yet it was an open secret certainly to everyone in food in new york city which was a small but influential group of people um so he was in the closet and yet the closet was a sort of complicated <laughs> multifaceted place and you know it was mainly had to do with the rules of how you how you kept this open secret and if you um if you did something that was just beyond that was outside of the rules of this open secret then you know like showing up in an event without a woman i mean mm-hmm. or james beard's generation you know even even in the early 1970s you know he would always have a date and of mm-hmm. course you know no one seriously thought that james beard was romantically interested in a woman on his arm but you had to play along you you just you had you had to do that so for me a large part of the research was understanding that and i think people who knew james and who loved him felt that t- even talking about that you know so long after his death was this violation hmm. of this whole set of rules um well that, that makes me um wonder now about your next book because i saw on yes. your instagram um that you have another book that you're either work still working on or that's in process yeah work, i finished work. the first draft a month ago so it's in the hands of my editor um yeah melanie tortoroli at norton um who was my editor on the beard book so yeah right now we're calling it what is queer food so it's a look um kind of a mm, it's like a cultural history um, of how queer communities uh, after World War II and up until like the 1980s, early early 1990s, used food, formed community around food, um, you know, protected their enclaves, <laughs> their queer enclaves with food, um, sort of expressed joy, desire, um, fear, all of those things um, through food. So this is a more, um, so yeah, it, it, it involves historical research um, and then just sort of a lot of, and then just a lot of my own critical voice. It um, sounds like, like a book version of the article a little bit, right? America, your food is so good. Yeah, <laughs> expanded, um, but kind of, you know, focusing on different, people not specifically in food sometimes um you know um james baldwin um even um edna lewis in her mm-hmm. early days uh at cafe nicholson in right. New York city which I was is just reading about that today yeah a super Capote. yeah super super queer queer restaurant um and sort of getting a sense of her life i mean she at that point in her life her kind of working partners were all sort of gay men who worked in window displays um, mm-hmm. in New York City, you know, Warden Taylor um, and um, Bonwit Teller. And so, um, yeah, it's, I think I'm trying to um, sort of intensify my understanding of the queer food stories that I've been writing. Um, to sort of stretch beyond the limits of the sort of traditional food world to understand that. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, I have a theory. I have one food that I think is 
straight food and not queer food okay. which is chicken wings like we just moved to the street well we just moved to the street and there's like a sports bar on it but it's like a wings bar yeah, and it yeah. is literally the most heterosexual space I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, it feels like it's literally like they should, they may as well put like a sign on the door, like no gays. Cause it's so like there's broy. I, I don't know. And then it's like all these people eating wings with their fingers and getting sauce all over the place. It's, <laughs> it's just something that you can use this for the book if you want, but that's just my theory. Um, well, John, this has been fantastic. Every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch? And it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? Ooh, what are we having for dinner? Um, I think Terry and I are going to go to a restaurant, um, a place in town called uh, Locale, which uh, is in this old farmhouse in Tucson. It has this okay. big yard with all these palm trees. And um, I don't know what I will eat. Maybe just a bowl of polenta with cheese, something like mm-hmm. that, something uncomplicated. Okay, well, that's that, that's interesting. That kind of ties into your lunch, sort of. Yeah, I know. It's very cheese. cheesy. Yeah, you like cheese and you like a carb <laughs> with your cheese. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, sounds great. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, and I'm thanks, so excited. Yeah, I'm excited to read your new book when it comes out. So we'll keep an eye out for that. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good time at dinner tonight. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. That's all for this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. If you want to keep up with me and my culinary adventures, give me a follow on Instagram and Twitter or X, whatever it's called, or TikTok at Amateur Gourmet. And be sure to subscribe to my Amateur Gourmet newsletter at amateurgourmet.substack.com. All right, we'll see you back here next week. And don't forget to eat lunch.